potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on some very unique fronts. Uh, today we have the honor uh, of being joined by Dr. Svetlana Volkova, uh, who is Chief Scientist in Decision Intelligence and Analytics part of the National Security Directorate at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Uh, and PNNL is one of the United States Department of Energy's national laboratories. It's managed by the DOE uh, Office of Sciences. Uh, and Dr. Volkova is a, a recognized leader in the field of computational social science and computational linguistics. Uh, and her contributions in science and her publication profile cover a really broad range of topics uh, on applied machine learning, deep learning, uh, natural language processing, and so social media analytics. Uh, Dr. Volkova's research focuses on understanding, predicting, and explaining human behavior, interactions, and real-world events from open-source social data, uh, and her approaches help advance the affection decision-making and reasoning about extreme volumes of dynamic, multilingual, multimodal, and diverse real-world unstructured data. Uh, Dr. Volkova has her PhD uh, in computer science from Johns Hopkins, uh, Center for Language and Speech Processing. She did her master's in computer science at Kansas State University, and uh, we're honored to have her with us today. Um, Dr. Svetlana Volkova, thank you so much for taking time on your schedule call to talk to us for a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It, it's really great having you, um, Svetlana. I, I would love to start off um as we typically do on the show by really handing you the floor for a little bit just to uh, talk a little bit more about you because you you have a clearly fascinating background um i'd love to hear just a little bit about the beginning um everything from uh where you grew up when you first got interested in computer sciences in general and then sort of this fascinating intersection this three-way between computer science social science and linguistics I think that'd be a great way to start things off, everybody. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Ukraine. I came to the United States on a Fulbright program more than 13 years ago. Um, I grew up in a small town called Bashtanka in the south of Ukraine. And when I was in the eighth or ninth grade, I was admitted to the Kiev Lyceum of Physics and Mathematics. It's still there. Uh, and this is the Lyceum uh, that is affiliated with the National Trashichenko University in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. So it was really, all the time, I was really into math and physics. And that's how it all started. And then after spending a few years uh, uh, in Kiev, I went back 
to make a life uh to this back back to back home and i started um um, learning computer science. So I, I was admitted to the Department of Computer Science at the Petromachila Black Sea State University. Um, and um, after that, I graduated with my bachelor's and my master's, and I started even teaching and started my PhD back in Ukraine. And um, after that, I just got admitted to a Fulbright program, so I passed all of the tests, and um, I came to Kansas. <laughs> so Kansas <laughs> was my first exposure to the United States, um, and then in Kansas, I was um, I I was studying computer science and information sciences, and um, I'm, Kansas State University was uh, the first place where um, I, I uh, got interested in machine learning specifically. And after Kansas, um, um, I started my PhD at Johns Hopkins University at the Center for Language and Speech Processing. And at that point of time, I was pretty sure that I want to study people, language, um, human behavior, uh, and using computer science tools and techniques. So my exposure and my my interest in machine learning and deep learning, actually, um, even at Hopkins, deep learning was pretty new mm-hmm. uh, back then. Um, uh, but I was always, um, I was always a math girl. I was always fascinated with mathematics and physics. And, um, and that, that's, I guess, that's my journey in like two minutes. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. You know, it, it, it's it's been a fascinating one. And you know, as I mentioned before the show, I I spent time sort of diving into you know a lot of your previous work, and 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 I thought it'd be fun before we even get into to PNNL just to talk a little bit about some of these stops to really just show the breadth of everything that you've been involved in. And, and one of the all equally fascinating, but an extremely fascinating place I, I started with was uh, back in 2010. Uh, you're at Kansas State uh, and you're doing your thesis, which uh, is entitled Entity Extraction, Animal Disease Related Event Recognition and Classification from the Web. Uh, you're collaborating with the um, the National Agricultural Biosecurity Center at the time. And I said, well, you're not focusing on something like COVID back then, you're focusing on this major issue of zoonosis, uh, the ability of of animals to pass things back and forth, which obviously have a major economic impact, uh, but then there's also this other theme that you know we got into with the with the biodefense folks recently uh, in terms of agroterrorism. A lot of issues there. Uh, you, you focused on uh, something known as infectious disease informatics, looking at things like salmonella, foot and mouth disease, Rift Valley fever. Talk a little bit about because you know. I'm a life science. I love the life sciences. I'm, I'm looking at you and all this amazing link, computational linguistics. You pull it together with the life sciences back in 2010, you know, a decade before this little exactly. zoonosis problem we have now. Walk us through what was happening back then, if you would. Absolutely. It was very novel. Um, so, and the novelty was coming from the open source data, right? So, how can we leverage tons of open source data that is coming from news and different reports in many languages from many countries? Can we develop uh, machine learning algorithms that can really efficiently um, 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 and quickly process this huge amounts of data and make sense of this data to uh, help with infectious disease monitoring and even um, anticipation, right? So can, if we're monitoring a specific region through open source data, can we be uh, proactive 
um, and see that the outbreak is coming there, right? And this is this as I'm telling you, um, kind of going back to uh, 2010, it was pretty novel. Um, uh, right now, we have very mature techniques and tools that have been developed and actually actively used by the government that are helping government officials to to be proactive and to make effective decisions and to send help where the help is needed. Um, but back then, it was it was very new and very exciting. Um, uh, so we were using natural language processing techniques and developing new techniques because nothing existed. So we build ontologies specifically for animal diseases. Um, and we were developing extraction information, extraction algorithms to extract useful events and entities, right? Attributes that are affiliated with, um, uh, with outbreaks, uh, uh, the number of casualties, right, or uh, the affected regions, so very specific locations and people and organizations involved. So the um, to present it to the person, to the analyst or a decision maker, um, uh, to help him or her to make um, to make a, a more optimal decision on the ground. Very cool, very cool, and um, you know. Continuing along sort of that journey, so I'll, I'll go come a couple of years forward now to 2015. Uh, you're at Hopkins, you're working on your dissertation, and this is uh, for your PhD entitled Predicting Demographics and Affect and Social Networks. Um, you know, you, you focus, okay, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on in social media now in terms of all this data, not just data, but all sorts of other things that we don't normally think about in terms of information that we're putting out there, including, as you term, so-called latent attributes of the users. Um, talk a little bit, because here, you, you, your dissertation, you, you focus heavily on Twitter at the time and, and, and exploring some of these, you know, these fascinating, you know, learnings about emotions and, and, and all sorts of other things. And, and then subsequently to that, because... Um, I know there was some, uh, I think it was a couple of years after that when you, there was a, uh, a P, oh, yeah, your paper, AGP Data Science, we were talking about uh, specifically in that case, you're looking at uh, health and affect uh, over social media and whether you can deduce certain things from, uh, in, certain, in, in that particular case, the military community. We'll talk a little bit about, because I know for the Johns Hopkins that led into um, that next publication, but please say a few words about that if you would, too. Absolutely. Um... So back at Hopkins, uh, I, uh, I still continued uh, looking into open data sources. And one type of open data source is social media. And back then, Twitter was very popular. And it was the best place uh, for researchers to really move um, social computational social science research to the next level, right? So it was the era when we were uh, moving around away a little bit from the lab experiments, they're very small and focused and difficult to conduct and time consuming to the, uh, uh, and we were equipped with the ability to just crowdsource the population in a matter of hours, kind of, right? So I'm assuming that we have the right algorithms and the right uh, models, right? But the ability to really understand the pulse of the, of the nation and, uh, um, um, and I'm not even talking about anticipating, right, but the ability to really understand what people uh, are concerned about, what bothers them, what emotions they express, how they do that, how people communicate, about what, right, in real time. This, uh, this is very important. This is very important for national security. This is very important in general 
for studying human uh, health and human behavior and making human life better, making our life better. Um, so I was, um, I wrote my thesis, specifically in my thesis, I developed um, machine learning models to understand people's emotions and um, sentiments um, across many languages, um, as well as uh, psychodemographic traits, right? So um, depending on the level of education um, uh, or um, my age, I am uh, I'm interested in specific uh, topics and I have specific concerns and um, 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 being able to predict these attributes and my reactions to certain events and things is very important. Um, um, it's a very important tool for, um, for, for studying human behavior and understanding us better. Um, and it's not only about um, uh, companies that are doing it, right? So for example, when companies are providing like recommendations and, and sending you specific videos or specific advertisement, this is one aspect of it. So I wasn't focusing on it. I wasn't working for any company. I was doing my thesis. So my interest was pure research interest where I, um, I just wanted to understand people better uh, at scale, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of millions of people and I wanted to understand cultures better, uh, right? So um, since I am a native, uh, I'm native Ukrainian, I, um, um, I really looked into like the Russian speaking and Ukrainian speaking populations and looked into subtle differences when back in 2014, uh, when the Crimea, when Crimea when I was annexated, I, I did a study and published on it, understanding people's sentiment, people, Crimean people's sentiment um, uh, and outside Crimea and Ukrainian people's sentiment. And this is all possible through language, the way that we speak and what we speak about and the way that we express our thoughts and uh, perceptions is very revealing, very revealing. Uh, so we can really understand whether people are angry or people are sad or people are in support. Uh, um, and, and that's what was my thesis about, the kind of uh, looking across many cultures, uh, very large populations, and trying to understand how they behave and what they are concerned about through language. Excellent. Really excellent. So you you come to uh, PNNL, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, as I mentioned in the, the intro, you know, part of the United States Department of Energy and 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 under the Office of Science, um, and, you know, we normally think about sort of the Department of Energy. We think, of course, energy and and you know Oak Ridge and um, Fermi and and Los Alamos and things like that. And we're thinking about nuclear waste and fuels and so forth. But you know, when you really dive into the organization. Um, yours and, 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 and many of these other labs, I mean, you're doing, there's a lot more going on there than just energy, um, cybersecurity, informatics, uh, there's a whole range of uh, environmental, soil remediation, bioenergy. Could you, could you take a few minutes and just give us sort of the 2022, well, 2023 landscape of what PNNL is all about and, and a little bit about sort of um, where where your where your directives come from in any given day? You know who you know, you're the chief scientist, but who calls you up and say, "Hey, you know, Svetlana, we need you to look at this today <laughs> versus that." Svetlana is still lucky to choose her own problems that she looks at, but yeah. I can explain you how it works. Awesome. Uh, so, 
Uh, PNNL is, as you said, supported by the DOE Office of Science. However, we have many other sponsors, and I was lucky to lead two DARPA projects. One that is that was focusing on how information spreads through social uh, media, um, and one was focusing on understanding cause and effect relationships uh, in real world data. So causality, why something happened? Can we explain it, right? What causes it? Um, and, um, so, and, and primarily the um, sponsors, uh, the director that I work for, uh, the National Security Director, uh, they include the Department of Defense, uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Department of Energy, um, and and also like other sponsors, special programs, uh, you know, the intelligence community. So um, um, non-proliferation also is another big area of research for the National Security Directorate. So National um, and Nuclear Security Administration specifically, yep. their NIT22 office has funded a lot of AI-related work. So it really depends uh, on the directorate and PNNL has, has four core directorates. I represent the National Security Directorate, and that's how that's how we align um, our research interests with the sponsor research interests, right? So, um, and I again represent the AI community. So, um, all of the projects I have been working on at PNNL, and I have been with the lab for the last seven years, and I graduate. Uh, I joined the PNNL as soon as I graduated uh, from Hopkins. And I started working on, uh, uh, on I think, a few projects for Detra back then. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting project because they were uh, a natural um, like extension of my previous work, my thesis work, focusing on open source data, where we're looking to understanding uh, uh, military populations through social media and understanding their emotions and reactions in context of disease outbreaks and specifically focusing on flu. And we wrote a very cool paper. We were the first people um, uh, who used deep learning to anticipate flu outbreaks specifically in, in military communities. Uh, so imagine you can collect um, communications, public communications around military bases, and you can understand, you can anticipate uh, the uh, uh, flu uh, numbers, right? The number of people who will come to the clinic in that area only from social media. Obviously, um, if you have uh, the actual clinic data, right? Historical data, you can you can predict trends better. But even what we demonstrated, and that's why that work was very influential, but what we demonstrated was that um, if you only look at social media and imagine you're not looking into the U.S., you're looking in some country, let's say Ukraine, where you don't have any historical data, mm -hmm. right? By only looking into what people are chatting about on Twitter, which is crazy, but that's the case, you can anticipate the trend of, uh, um, of flu outbreaks. Mm -hmm. um, so that's um, that's kind of one types of problems where bio, called in biosecurity, right? How can we... Uh, uh, understand the human behavior and use open source data to predict uh, uh, like uh, flu outbreaks or COVID outbreaks recently too, right? So we also built a very interesting tool when COVID started, I think within a month after COVID started, we developed a tool called Watchable, where we looked into people's reactions and perceptions towards different non-pharmaceutical interventions that different governors started establishing, right? So we had social distancing and uh, different types of closures, right? And different types of restrictions. 
And different governors in different states uh, established them at a different time. And people started expressing reactions on Twitter. So by using the tools that we developed internally, um, uh, uh, we were able to uh, to demonstrate in real time that these states are in favor, the states are against, the states uh, expressing agreement or a questioning, right? So this is, I think, using uh, models like machine learning and deep learning models um, to really uh, help decision makers in real time to make informed decisions, whether it's about flu outbreaks or COVID outbreaks, infectious disease outbreaks. This is extremely important for national security and also for us. Um, and any, you or I can also use these tools um, and leverage them to also get understanding uh, what is happening in my state, right? Mm -hmm. How are people perceiving these new restrictions, right? So this kind of research. And, uh, but but there is, uh, we're definitely doing beyond that. Recently, I really focused on non-proliferation. Mm -hmm. uh, can we really detect the um, uh, potential signs of proliferating countries from open source data? So if you think about my team's research in general, I really, um, 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 I really rely on uh, large amounts of unstructured, multilingual, multimodal open source data. And it can be the scientific literature domain or it can be the social media domain, right? Depending mm -hmm. on the problem that you are trying to solve. So beyond, just to maybe wrap up at this point, and beyond, no, awesome. beyond biosecurity that we discussed with flu and COVID and military populations, um, uh, we also looked into non-proliferation and finally cognitive security and resilience. So we published a lot of papers um, uh, and developed a lot of capabilities and tools to really understand misinformation and disinformation and in general information operations campaigns. Yeah, it's um, it's completely fascinating. J just for the the, uh, the the listeners and the audience, the um, the influenza paper. Just uh, in case we want to look at it, uh, uncovering the relationships between military, community health, and affects expressed in social media. It's a 2017 uh, EJP data science. But you know, as you bringing up. Um, Nuclear security. I just want you know. I just want to ask because you know I had um, uh, a couple of months ago uh, Angela Sheffield uh, from um, NNSA joined to talk about artificial intelligence in that context, and I was joking with her a little bit at the time. You know, I, I got I have a, a, a well seventeen year old son. He's here, you know, in this house, and he loves all things nuclear science. And we were joking about you know ultimately you know uh, you know if he types you know how a nuclear <laughs> how a nuclear bomb works. How you differentiate that ultimately from somebody doing it, some scary person over there somewhere. Um, talk a little bit, if you would, about some of these tools, because, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning a little bit uh, in terms of um, various things on the show, in terms of drug development, uh, in terms of uh, farming practices and so forth. We touched on it in terms of the opioid epidemic. Talk a little bit about sort of where we are with artificial intelligence and you're because you know for the layperson like me I, I think of ai i'm like okay I push a button here and all the answers come out but i think there's a lot more more going on behind the scenes take us through a little bit of sort of what technologies excite you what don't excite you as much where sort of the ai space is really headed uh, technologically in general right not yeah. focusing on any domain okay yeah. 
So, um, as an AI expert, I, 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 and I'm sharing just my my biased opinions. Um, over the last uh, probably at least 15 years, we made a lot of breakthroughs in AI. So many things happen in natural language processing. So many things happen in computer vision right now. Uh, um, when we like uh, uh, when we build AI systems to uh, understand images. They, they are very smart and very different and uh, at this point even outperform for object detection outperform and for other tasks outperform human performance uh for language similarly like breakthroughs like bird and like other models uh, like generative models gpt3 transform the field mm -hmm. uh, we are looking into uh, ai and language understanding so if i think about myself in like 2010 when i started working with like information extraction Mm -hmm. Right now, information extraction is done in a completely different way, at a different level. So a lot of breakthroughs happen, and you can actually see them in your real life, right? So, for example, speech recognition, when you call your bank, the, the robot is much smarter than even a couple years ago, right? So all of this, like speech recognition, computer vision, uh, and like natural language processing, uh, we made huge improvements. Um, and the industry is driving a lot of these discoveries and a lot of a lot of innovation in this space. Uh, also, cloud is important um, aspect of this research, right? Where we deploy and building models the way that we develop models. We deploy them very fast. Uh, we deploy them in the cloud uh, at scale, right? So, for example, when Twitter releases an, another feature, uh, it's deployed and validated very fast, like compared even to two years ago. So a lot of progress happened, but at the same time, um, wearing my national security hat, I'm talking about the mission, I'm thinking about the mission, and I'm thinking about applications in the field, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't think we're really there yet, uh, especially in like mission critical spaces. A lot has to happen to AI in terms of verification and validation and evaluation before we can really say that uh, we can put AI here to assist the analyst. I'm not even saying we can put AI in the field to replace the, the analyst, mm -hmm. replace the mm -hmm. human, not yet. So I strongly believe that AI is at that point where it's still human AI, right? Mm -hmm. So AI is much smarter doing specific things than the human, like processing tons of tweets and understanding millions and billions of papers or images, satellite images, right? So AI is good with this pattern recognition things and information extraction, knowledge extraction things, right? Like tasks. Mm -hmm. But the human is still the uh, the um, this lag that is uh, or this part of this interaction that is making the decision Right, so I don't think we fully, uh, uh, and I don't think that this is the right thing to do right now to allow AI to make the decision. And we are not talking about the reasoning, right? So when right. we when we look and when we when we interact with the analytics, right, with that is powered by AI, um, and analysts are doing it, they are the final parties that are making these decisions that affects. Um, like the downstream applications and the downstream users. So that's where I think AI is. We still have to do tons. We achieved a lot, so much 
so much automation, so much better accuracy. Definitely, um, we can perform tasks much faster, much better with higher accuracy using using modern AI, right? With this mm-hmm. AI evolution. But I don't think I can really say that I can get out um, uh, this like human out of the loop. Yep. Absolutely no. And I think actually that's 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 uh, that's how it should be at least right now obviously we want to automate right we want to move uh, uh from even from automation to autonomy right so we want to build this autonomous vehicles autonomous laboratories right um eventually i don't know whether it's 10 20 years but we're getting there absolutely getting there got it I appreciate you. I, I figured about, I, I need to ask you about that based on your expertise. So, but thank you for, for putting that out there. Um, you know, talking a little now more a little about um, national security, and you know, we talked a little bit about sort of bio, uh, you touched on the nuclear topic. Uh, I noticed another per- part of your purview um, at PNL is uh, deception detection and tracking in social news media. And um, you were interviewed in the Washington Post. This was a uh, I think it was last year, uh, and it was talking about cryptocurrency scams. Um, I think it was the time when sort of Facebook was bringing out their cryptocurrency. And, you know, you're quoted in here talking about, like, you know, we, we think about sort of uh, deception in sort of the political sphere, but financial deception, you know, this can have a, you know, a major impact as well on <laughs> on a lot of things that go on. Talk a little bit about um, what you what you can tell about some of the things you're doing in the area of deception detection uh, related, and and if you could talk about crypto, that'd be cool as well. Absolutely, that's uh, so. Um, we started. My team started working on the uh, this portfolio, and I call it cognitive security and resilience portfolio. Um, back in 2016, and we wrote more than 30 papers in this area, touching different aspects of this problem. So uh, uh, even so I think like 2015, 2016, when, when um, um, multidisciplinary team of teams of scientists started really looking deeper into the problem of disinformation and misinformation, um, uh, including us. Um, um, so we developed machine learning models that are, and we actually patented uh, a lot of work there, uh, models that can, uh, from social media, detect whether this is a propaganda tweet or a clickbait tweet or a disinformation tweet, right? So predicting different types of deception. We also developed a lot of tools that help the end users, researchers or analysts to really understand the information environment. And by that, I mean, uh, measuring how information spreads, uh, how fast, how far, how quickly, who is spreading it, right? So another aspect was this um, um, audience characterization, right? We really, um, um, which is which is in line with my thesis work, like with psychodemographics and effects and the uh, perceptions, uh, sentiments, and reactions to certain events. And in addition to that, we used uh, to that we used uh, 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 and developed uh, used the existing and developed new causal discovery tools to really answer the question why. So basically, the idea is to look into the information domain like social media, Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, um, Telegram, you name a social platform, um, and really understand what spreads, how it spreads, who is reacting to it, who is how people are reacting, who is engaging with this information narratives. And a lot of this is powered by AI models, most of it. Uh, 
Um, and then another aspect was why. Why some narratives spread and some do not spread? Why some people are reacting to this disinformation and spreading it further and some people do not? What are their attributes? And then we can go even deeper, like when, when you think about characteristics and attributes of, of people, you can think about moral foundations and our moral foundations are defined by our culture and our background. Um, so it's it's very fascinating. Again, going back to studying people and studying cultures. And um, uh, like like overall, um, since 2016, we have we have developed a lot of tools that help us to really understand human behavior and, and, and tackle the problem as disinformation and misinformation spread and even go beyond beyond this reactive posture where let's say there is a misinformation campaign around COVID that is happening on Twitter, right? And we can measure it, we can see it's a fact, right? Uh, but it's post factum. What we can also do, we can be, we can be uh, proactive and, and, and a little bit prescriptive, right? Can we anticipate this is happening? Given of what we already observed, can we really anticipate that this is going to go this way and, and these people are going to engage, right? So I think being able to, um, to anticipate and forecast the future is very important. It's very important for national security. Uh, it, it's very important in general to the humanity because we can, uh, I don't want to say stop the spread, but I want to say mitigate the, the effect, right? Um, and you know, many cases when um, different types of campaigns, even going beyond disinformation and misinformation, like um, intimidation campaigns or um, polarization campaigns that are usually happening during the elections, right? They had tragic impact on some communities, right? I mean, it's not only... A, it, it, I mean, people are dying. This is very serious. And even if you if you think about what is happening in Ukraine right now, in my own country, um, the ability to be uh, effective on the field with the weapon and the ability to be effective in the information space, I don't want to say that it's so equal, but I'm leaning towards saying that this is equal, right? So people are fighting on the ground, but people are also fighting in the information environment. And people are saying specific things and people are not saying specific things. And there are, uh, there are plenty of examples that I observe. And as an expert in this space, I see, hmm, this is suspicious. And I look into the source and I look into how it spreads, right? And I can immediately say that, hmm, I see that something is happening here. There are bots involved, right? So... It's very important. Uh, many we've made a lot of progress, as I said, the whole as a whole community, not only national labs and the government, but researchers, companies, right? So over this period of time, we collaborated with, with different companies and with different universities. We made a lot of progress in this space. So at this time, I think we we can really we developed AI-powered tools that can help us to understand the information environment and make it better, make it cleaner make it better and monitor the situation in real time effectively. Speaking of those relationships, uh, you know, because a, a lot of the the guests that I've had from different government um, institutes and so forth uh, have these outreach sort of collaborative uh, programs um, where they work with uh, small innovators or university labs. 
what is what is the model for that at an organization like PNNL? If if there was a you know a promising scientist at a university or a startup company that has an interesting idea, how how do they interface with you? How do they work with you? Um, what's the process for something like that? Uh, the lab is very collaborative and my team is extremely collaborative and I am very diverse with my collaborations and I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are working for these companies like Meta and Twitter and Microsoft Research, Amazon. Um, so the way that I, we usually do it, we, we give talks, we visit, we have like visits, right? And we have shared projects and we write papers together, right? If it's talking about the companies, because with the companies, it's this this way, right? So the companies can't pay money for the government, uh, but the way that we collaborate, we just collaborate on a shared research topic and we publish a paper together. With the universities, it's, it's easier uh, because we can uh, subcontract the university and a student can come and do an internship. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have actually leveraged that mechanism very successfully in my career, and I was able to work with brilliant students across many universities. Um, some local like UW, I think every project that I had, I had a subcontract with the University of Washington, and I was um, I was lucky to work with the brilliant students from the University of Washington, but also other universities like Western Washington and the University of um, Notre Dame University, Carnegie Mellon University, and many more. So usually students come here and, and do the internship and we call this program that is very competitive. It's called National Security Internship Program. Okay. And after the internship, um, students can continue doing this research through a subcontract if the project can support and continue doing it and incorporate it into their thesis and uh, come into another internship. So I actually had three uh, former students who I was able to hire as full-time who were doing at least internships with me over the course of the last seven years. And they are PNNL scientists right now, which is, which is, which is a great thing because they are brilliant people and they are brilliant they're early career researchers. And we got them through the internships. We got them excited. We got them excited about the technologies that we're building and about the problems that we're solving. Because the problems that PNNL is solving that are related to national security are very different from what Twitter or Amazon or Microsoft Research is, is working on. So that's how we engage academia. But there are other mechanisms. We have shared workshops and we also have uh, I mean, definitely meet at conferences, and uh, uh, PNNL also organizes this AI um, research summit where we invite academia and industry. So many ways to collaborate and partner. And, and speaking of those topics, I, just tell us a little bit while we have you. Um, are there things coming up, um, conferences uh, that you're going to be presenting at, places that people listening to the show may meet you or listen to you? What's happening for the rest of 2022, 2023 beginning? Anything you can mention, please. So I can tell you about one really cool event that is going to happen in, in value in February of 23. Um, and to give you a little bit of a background, there is a new emerging um technology that is being developed right now and uh, research called foundation models, uh, foundational AI models. So we're talking about these models that are multi-purpose models and instead of that are going beyond narrow AI. So basically prior to foundation models, 
we have been developing, including my team, right? All of us, industry, academia, we have been developing much smaller models in terms of the number of parameters that focus on like one data set, one modality, one task, right? So if I want to do object recognition, I train my model to do object recognition. If I want to do, let's say, um, what is, I am not a computer vision person, but um, object tagging, right? So object recognition, just putting a box about object tagging is naming the object. I build a separate model, right? Instead, what is happening with foundation models, it's a one model that is trained on extremely large amount of data without any labels in a self-supervised fashion. And this one single model, this one single brain can do many tasks at the same time, object detection, object recognition, image captioning, you name it, right? So many tasks. And these models, they uh, started uh, to transform the natural language processing field in 20, 2018. And the models like BERT and GPT-3 uh, that are driven primarily by industry uh, appeared and they completely changed the way that we do AI right now. So instead of developing like a single task narrow AI model, we are developing this this multi-purpose brain, if you wish, right? Multi-purpose, similar to what we do, right? Because we see, we hear, we talk. Um, that can be easily fine-tuned, right? And fine-tuned, I mean, adapted to do many tasks, right? So you train one model on large data, but then you can easily adapt it to many tasks. And that's what the workshop is going to be about. So uh, PNNL is one of the first labs that invested in foundational AI research in these foundation models that, as I said, have been primarily driven by industry. Um, and we will host a workshop in collaboration with the industry and collaboration with academia. And the workshop is supported by the National Nuclear Security Administration and the DOE um, Office of Science, specifically their OSCOR office, Advanced Science Research um, um, Office. Um, and we will talk about how to apply uh, these models, the existing models developed by industry to science and security applications. And what is missing and what, uh, what should be the research directions and what are the research gaps in this foundational AI that are specifically important to science and security applications. So that's, I think, one of the exciting um, um, events that is going to happen in February. Uh, and in terms of 2022, I think just uh, preparing uh, NERFs is going to happen in 2022, actually, in December, late November, early December, which is the the top tier AI conference uh, no. nurse, right? So that's that's a big event and I hope I participate and attend and, and meet friends and colleagues and again, talk about collaboration. So these are two exciting things that are coming at least. Yeah, no, they, they, they sound extremely exciting. I'm glad you put that out there. So anyway, everybody that's listening and uh, and watching this episode will we'll be able to uh, to see you and, and, and hear you potentially meet you. So, I mean, this is all really fascinating stuff, Svetlana. I mean, it's uh, it's an amazing portfolio. I just, I want to ask one, I mean, this is sort of the comical question of the show, but I just have to ask, I mean, I, uh, before we were talking about, you know, this sort of the, the purview uh, line of forecasting the future using these diverse social media sources, obviously, you know, being involved in U.S. national security, you're involved in a lot of top secret stuff that you can't talk about. You know, I'm sure you have to sign a lot of, uh, <laughs> of secrecy agreements. Are there certain things that you, you had to sign before you got involved in this that you're not allowed? I mean, obviously, your team can't 
play the currency markets on the side <laughs> or the stock markets or something while you're working on these super advanced, you know, <laughs> global brain tools. Are there other things that you're not allowed to do or <laughs> anything? I was, it just popped in my mind as I was thinking of sort of the, the knowledge that you potentially <laughs> have in terms of predicting the future. So I I am a green card holder, so I still can get to top secret stuff. And all of the projects that my team is working on is unclassified, right? So all, okay. and all of my research is public and open. And we share models and data sets. I really, I am, I am in favor of uh, uh, open research, of an open research model, right? And, and very collaborative, right? So we try yeah. to develop um, our models and tools. We, we always release them publicly. And let's be patent. Gotcha. Uh, but in terms of uh, something like uh, scary about the future, so when I'm talking about anticipation, uh, I think everyone wants to know where the trap is going to be, right? Like right. you and I, like with the market, let's say, right? Like, yeah. oh, if I only knew that this was going to happen today, right? Sure. Uh, we're getting there. And if we're looking into the models, they also get uh, get the, the boundary of like of this predictive capacity, right? And there have been really good papers recently that actually mathematically explain this predictive power, right? So I can't really go beyond this much, right? And and, and theoretically prove why not, right? right. So there is some anticipation that is happening, but it's we still have to incorporate a lot of content or a lot of context right because like the ability to predict the future mm -hmm. you really need to put many variables uh, sure. together right and sometimes these variables are not measurable um so anyway um uh, what i'm trying to say is um it's it's still difficult uh, i don't think it's that the future is that scary uh, uh and, I, and i am an optimist and i and i and um and i'm an optimist and a realist i also see working building ai models every day i see the power of it i see the power of it um on the mission and the effect on the mission right in some fields as i said it completely transformed the way that is that that research is done sure um uh, but at the same time, AI is not perfect, right? And then we can talk about many examples of uh, of uh, times when AI failed and failed badly, right? And we cannot afford that in mission-critical applications. So I think another area of research that is important and the community finally started looking into it a couple of years ago really seriously is uh, trusted and responsible AI, how we develop AI in a trusted yeah. and responsible way, right? And that's, I think, to answer your question about uh, did you have to sign anything? I think like we all have to sign this uh, moral, um, I don't sure. know, where when we develop AI, uh, we have to think about the consequences. And, and some conferences are even requiring to put a, a statement of potential adversaries that this um, or adversarial scenarios that this model can be used because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, a deep fake paper was published at NERPS at this top tier conference, right? And you see uh, what's the effect of deep fakes that is happening, right? And what is the effect like nowadays? Um, so that's important to make sure that we all, when we develop models, we are developing them responsibly. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, that uh, topic of AI ethics and... Uh... 
uh, responsibility is yeah it, it it seems to be prevalent across every, all these fields that we talk to so I, it, it's I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up as well um I predict that this will be a very this will be a very popular episode for us because uh, this is just um such a fact as I said I mean, your portfolio uh, of responsibility is so fascinating and and you're such you know, on this, I call the bleeding edge of, of everything that's happening in this domain. I, I really rooting you on uh, not just in the development of these tools, but obviously in, in everything that you're doing to uh, to keep us safe and secure here in the United States. So really exciting work um, for everybody that uh, is going to be listening to this particular episode of our show across the various podcast networks or are watching on the YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Svetlana Volkova. Chief Scientist, Decision Intelligence and Analytics, National Security Directorate at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, part of our U.S. Department uh, of Energy. Um, Svetlana, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a while about all these themes. Obviously, thank you for everything that you do in developing this and for our national security. And as we like to say on our show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for many people out there via what you're doing. Really very promising and exciting work. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to thank my team because there are the people behind this research that we are doing. And also thank you to the sponsors, right? People who really invest in this research because they think that that's important and that can change the future. So thank you. That's great. Great seeing you. <laughs>